I just think it's interesting that there may be a kind of a, a new movement happening that is maybe led by Greater Appalachia. But it's just an interesting way I feel to to look at Bitcoin culture that geographically it actually might overlap with this uh, Greater Appalachia um, area. And so yeah, Millet is uh, is a really unique phenomenon. He has this incredible popularity with the youth. Uh, he's like a rock star, and he basically says like governments should live within their means and they should basically only focus on rule of law so the the court system and the police he says everything else they destroy this podcast is brought to you by unchained capital incorporated this podcast is entertainment and not financial tax or legal advice views expressed by unchained speakers represent statements of the speaker in his or her individual capacity and do not represent the views of unchained and further should not be considered investment recommendations views expressed by third-party speakers represent their own opinions and their statements do not reflect the views of unchained third-party speakers often have material connections to unchained which may be personal family or business in nature and may include but not be limited to direct financial benefits from unchained for more information please see our podcast notes and our podcast disclosure at unchained.com podcast Hey everyone, welcome to the Bitcoin Frontier podcast. This week we have on Tour Demister. Tour, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. Glad to have you. Um, your journey on the Bitcoin Frontier so far has been very interesting. You've been around many having epochs. What's been like the highlight or the low of each having epoch to you? Yeah, or of every bull and bear market because they kind of, you know, coincide. Um, yeah, I mean, the the first cycle I was a part of was really the mm, the early 2012 bull market. Like I learned about Bitcoin in like 2011, but I wasn't really a market participant. Um, there was a little like flash in the pan uh, that happened, like rallied to $30, then back down. And so to me, the big theme of 2012 was that there weren't really investors involved. Most of the people were like coders or, you know, and so people started getting really excited about mining hardware. So it was like this idea, like, oh my God, like they're going to make special chips to mine. And so they were, uh, a lot of people were just buying or pre-ordering mining uh, machines instead of, um, just buying Bitcoin. So there were no altcoins really. Like it was a little, little buzz about alternative coins. Um, and uh, so that was that first, uh, you know, cycle. And then there was a lull. And then we kept rallying to a uh, thousand bucks uh, late 2013. And I would say, like, when, you know, when things went down again, 2014, 15, I feel like that was just the Mt. Gox collapse. And there was just kind of, also, generally, it's a pretty, you know, common truth that if an asset declines by 70, 80%, it's game over. Like, so people just thought it was dead. People, yeah, didn't really understand it. So you just had to like grind it out. That was, those was a really long bear market. And then, I mean, you know, it gets into familiar territory. I think 2016, there was a lot of worries about scaling. Um, 15 even, there were all these like antagonistic proposals to hard fork Bitcoin. Uh, if you, you read Jonathan Beer's uh, The Block Size Wars, you read all about it. And then later was more the ICO craze. So yeah, I mean, coming down again, it's hard to put a theme on a bear market because people just lose interest. So like, you know, what kind, I, I feel like an early bull market, you can 
you know, put a theme on that because it's often like, what are people worried about? Like they're, they they want to be excited, but they're still worried. So maybe like early mm, 20, the early new bull market, you know, 2019, maybe it was like regulatory concerns. Uh, I mean, uh, w- what year were you uh, first involved in Bitcoin? 2017, but I didn't really become like deep mm. into Bitcoin until the 2018, 2019 bear market. Yeah, and so do you remember like what what was what were the stories in 2018, 19? I remember like when Bitcoin was hovering around like 6k, people were people somewhat blamed the drop to 3k on like the a minor capitulation, which I think to some extent is maybe fair and maybe mm-hmm. it's just broader markets were selling off at the time and there was just, you know, a need for dollar liquidity. Um but yeah, no, it was definitely an interesting time. I remember Bitcoin kept going down and I kept thinking, you know, this I f- this feels right. Like, I don't know why I'm wrong, but the price keeps telling me I'm wrong. And then obviously maybe we're right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's often just de- simple deleveraging, right? People just um, were too overexcited and they had to, I mean, and they had to adjust. And then of course, so so many of the ICO stories were completely bonkers. Uh, these new coins. And I think I remember now that 2018, 19 is when people started getting worried that some of these uh, coins were going to be, you know, sued by by governments. And so you had that like unwind and the, the VC story was unwinding a bit as well. The, the you know, Silicon Valley, what they, what they thought um, Bitcoin was about. So maybe that's something I forgot to mention is that 2013 is when VCs first start getting involved. So in in Silicon Valley, I think some people start getting excited about building the picks and shovels. So like, you know, funding Coinbase and like getting some of the early infrastructure companies up and running. But there was also a misunderstanding about the cypherpunk values. Like they just saw it more like as the new Amazon or the new Google and didn't necessarily get the the ethos. And so I think that kind of fueled them the later these crazy, um, you know, alternative coin bubbles that we saw. Yeah, that very, very first run-up or one of the very first run-ups to the $30, it was either in 2011 or, or 2012. Like you said, the community was so small back then. What do you think really drove that? Was it just like some wealthy doctor deciding to buy a lot of Bitcoin somehow? Or how do you think that happened? Yeah, I mean, it was that was actually 2011. So before uh, and early 2011, yeah, price was I think uh, in the dollar cents, and then it was one dollar, and it was as far as I remember either a slash dot article or a wired article, like just some kind of mainstream media article about this weird thing called Bitcoin, and that just drove a lot of attention. And because it was such a penny stock, I mean. Uh, imagine like 5 million Bitcoin in circulation and um, possibly less actually, and uh, a $1 Bitcoin price. So you had a $5 million market cap. So, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars and the price goes up like crazy. So yeah, I mean, this is all very, very small. And then just the downturn, I think it was just just an early bubble, you know. It's just um, uh, there was Bitcoinica, like uh, I I need to like look up when exactly that was, but there was a little platform where you could short Bitcoin as well, like um, and then there were some rug pulls early on, so people uh, lost Bitcoin. Uh, there was like a website mybitcoins.com 
that was an exit scam, uh, like an online wallet. So yeah, I think people just were learning about the risks. And then all of a sudden, you know, when you're excited initially, you don't need a lot of reason to to pull back if if it's so novel. I'm curious, over the years, is there anything that you look back on and you're like, wow, I was really wrong about that in regards to Bitcoin? I was wrong about how much money people are willing to invest in completely harebrained schemes. <laughs> Honestly, like I, I always like Ethereum early on, I was like, okay, I was excited. I thought it was going to be smart contracts on top of Bitcoin. Like that was the initial story. And, and then they started doing this like ICO thing, which was weirdly organized. And then their plans for scaling were like, oh, we're going to do something with sharding. Like it was all so bizarre and vague and didn't make sense. And yet, you know, here we are. It went to a gazillion dollars market cap. Like what what are we now at? What is it? A hundred billion still or something? Ethereum? Maybe a little more. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe 200. I think it's maybe half of Bitcoin's market cap. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe something like that. So yeah, I mean, uh, that that is something that really surprised me. Um, just how willing people are to invest in something that they don't entirely understand, which, I mean, you can say the same thing about Bitcoin, but I feel like a lot of the value investors, at least you want to like study the important aspects and really feel comfortable. Yeah. So people have different standards that that's been a big surprise over the years, things that I've been wrong about. Well, so I made some trades, you know, that, that didn't turn out well. Luckily I've always, uh, you know, had my, was pretty disciplined with stop losses and things like that. So you just, you just get stopped out and and then you lose whatever, 5% on your trade or something. Other things, um, I think calling the top is hard. I think that is something that I've been wrong about. I remember in the run-up in 2016, 17 especially, I was like too bearish. I was basically getting caught up in the wall of worry. I was like, oh, you know, I think we're going to really need a period to digest and 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 then... Uh, and I think part of it was that it was really hard to, you know, distinguish signal from noise. Like all you had to go on was online, whatever people are writing. Whereas now with on-chain analysis, I, I was listening to the Czech Mati uh, interview on uh, what Bitcoin did recently. And uh, he's the, the main technical guy, I believe, at um, Glassnode. Yep. And so, yeah, I mean, he was right. A lot, a lot of these tools were only developed in late 2017, early 2018, and then later, even later. So for a long time, we just didn't have tools to understand like what is the actual money saying instead of what is some guy in his mother's basement saying, you know, even though sometimes they do have a lot of money, but you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I like Checkmate mm-hmm. a lot. He has some really good, fairly unbiased content, I like to say. Um, so really cool. I know you've produced a lot of great content about Oliver Anthony, the, the guy that wrote the rich man, North of Richmond. Um, why do you think he struck so many people when he released that song? I can't speak for other people. I just, I know it hit me. Like really, it really, really hit me in a way that I, I was just moved in a way that I hadn't been in like over 10 years, like listening to just you know, I'm always like looking for new music. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, it's a pretty big hobby of mine to just dive in and see what's out there. And, and, um, yeah, I was very moved by it. And so, what it was for me is that obviously it comes from the heart, it's very sincere. 
uh, but there's courage involved and there's also knowledge involved. Like he's done some work to understand what is going on. And so he isn't just saying, I'm hurting, like he's saying, or we are hurting, because he's talking about um, people in uh, the American heartland who are just getting uh, poorer and poorer over the years, even though they're they're working their asses off. So yeah, I think to me, that really moved me. And then additionally, there is that element of fierceness, like really saying like, look, I, I'm not going to keep putting up with this. Um, and so... To me, that reminds me of the, you know, the civil rights movement in the 60s and, and uh, all the things that changed there, the anti-war movement. Um, you know, this is kind of a anti-monetary war because there is a kind of a, an ongoing debasement of people's savings. And, he, you know, people like that are actually hurt the most. People who are at the end of the um, trickle down, right, where the money comes in, that's north of richmond that is dc that's where the money is produced and then the people who get mortgages the people who borrow that's where the money first arrives even you know vc money and and california is as is, is another way that it gets into the economy and then the very last people to receive the new money are just regular workers they get their wage increases only happen when it's too late basically and so they see year after year that they can buy less and less with their income yeah i mean i've visited Bitcoin mines in Kentucky and, and West Virginia, and arguably those places are furthest away from the money printer, even though they're very close to DC. And I could see you know, someone like Oliver Anthony producing that song and and knowing there's a problem, but not being able to say like Bitcoin may be the solution and visiting Kentucky and West Virginia and cert certain parts of those states, it felt like there's a lot of people out there that probably feel the same way. Yeah, and 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 you know, he's he says the dollar ain't shit is one of the lines in the song, right? He really um and, and then he says uh it's tax to no end. So he's talking about the inflation tax. Um and uh, I, I want to see I thought I had a few more uh actually a few more lines of his lyrics. Um oh, here it is. Your dollar ain't shit, it's tax to no end because of Richmond north of Richmond. That's pretty clear. There's always, this is another song of his, there's always some kind of bill to pay, people just doing what the rich men say. He also says, people's crying about burning coal, but not the poor souls who's digging it. So he's kind of pointing out that money and attention goes to certain agendas and that there's a lot of people that are forgotten in, in, uh, in, in, in the process, which is, you know, whatever your politics are, it is true that inflationism is a, is a redistribution of wealth. Like you are taking it from one place and you're, you're giving it to another place. Like you can't just magically create more wealth by printing money. And so, yeah, I just feel like this is the beginning of something new. I, I, I thought of the first day it came out, like this guy, by the way, he went to number one in the charts in a matter of a day and he had never charted with any other song before. He even had never uh, performed, I believe, live for a big or even a small audience. And uh, it's unique. It's never happened before. Like always in the history of music, there was all people always go to like, you know, number 50 with a little song and then finally they have a number one. So just very unique, uh, you know, a unique uh, event. And I think it, it could be the beginning of, of something uh, a lot bigger. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess his rapid rise in popularity can 
partly be attributed to the internet right now, right? Like if you're able to produce great content or great music and it's really great, you can go to number one from, from nothing, which is pretty cool. Yeah, but it hasn't happened in the 15 years that the internet's been around. Um, right. But but I, I agree, of course, the virality, the how fast it went is, is because of the internet. But I think there's something about the that his message is just different. Uh, and that really speaks to people. I don't know if you want to go into it, but I, I talked about this research. Well, just a book that I had read where this journalist talks about the different cultures in the, in the United States. And uh, so I think this might be related to like one particular culture of uh, greater Appalachia that is, yeah. uh, has, has its um, origins in people from Northern England, people from uh, Ireland, Scotland, who immigrated to the U.S. and who are actually not wanted in the East Coast and so started settling south of Richmond, kind of where Oliver Anthony is from, is the beginning of Greater Appalachia. This is um, how Colin Woodard describes it in the book. And so, you know, maybe I can just read a, a little quote from the book about where... Well, actually, let me show the slide first. So again, in a nutshell, uh, Colin Woodard, what he suggests is that there's actually 11 cultural nations in uh, North America. They're all defined by this, the early settlers who set the tone. And so depending on where these people were from and what their story was, that has set the cultural tone even until today, like 200 uh, or 300 years later. And he actually proves that in the book by showing a current day voting records and really sh uh, you know, pointing out the the differences that still exist today that go back to that early settlement day. And of course, the, the population numbers have exploded, but people tend to self-select is his argument. Like whenever you go and move somewhere and you don't like the culture, then you're going to move away again. And when you do like the culture, then more people like you are going to join. Um, so Colin Woodard, this is how um, he shows uh, Greater Appalachia on the map. Like currently 60 million people live there. And uh, let me read you uh, the origins. Um, so that is uh, Appalachia. He says, the founders of Appalachia came from the war-torn borderlands of northern Britain. Their ancestors had weathered 800 years of nearly constant warfare, some of them fighting in the armies of William Braveheart Wallace. And then he describes their character. He says, suspicious of aristocrats, social engineers, and outside authority of any kind, borderlanders valued individual liberty and personal honor above all else, and were happy to take up arms to defend either. And so historically, he's saying that the elections actually in the U.S. have been decided by two um, other groups, by the Deep South, which is you know, uh, that includes Houston, parts of Florida, um, that whole area down there, um, the Deep South. And then on the other hand, Yankeedom, which is uh, the Northeast pretty much, which is uh, where the original, um, you know, English uh, settlers were. And so historically, basically he's saying the Democrats, that's the Yankees, and then the Deep South is pretty much the leading, leading of the pack of the Republicans. That's been the historical, um, you know, kind of uh, tension. And then the other the other nations will ally um, uh, will switch alliances, and so I just think it's interesting that there may be a kind of a, a new movement happening that is maybe led by Greater Appalachia, because if you look at you know the cities where Bitcoin is most popular, 
you know, I'm in Austin, so that's down there. That's actually at the far end, the the southwest of Greater Appalachia. And then where Oliver Anthony is singing from is just outside of uh, Raleigh. So it's like all the way in the east there. And um, anyway, I, I don't want to keep going on about it, but I just thought it's interesting because we also have Nashville. Nashville is known to be, uh, have a very intense uh Bitcoin uh, population, lots of startups there. So it's just an interesting way I feel to to look at Bitcoin culture. That geographically, it actually might overlap with this uh, Greater Appalachia um, area. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just looking at it, seeing the map stretch from Austin to Nashville, and like I'm just north of Atlanta, so I'm in this uh, Appalachia, you know, segment as well. Yay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is. I don't think it's a coincidence. I mean, the <laughs> distrust in institutions or the aristocrats, as it mentioned in that book, I mean, that's that's Bitcoin, right? Like being able to independently verify this new form of money, this new monetary policy, and be able to hold it and not be debased or stolen from like the dollar. So yeah, I mean, I think this was a fascinating presentation. Was this, I'm curious, this whole presentation, was this inspired by Oliver Anthony or, or did this just come up on its on its own? Yeah, it really was because um, he, in an interview, he said, oh, people are describing my music as like music from, you know, Appalachia, but, um, or Appalachia, but that's not true because where I'm from, like I'm, I'm out of the mountains uh, but then he does say like, oh, my grandfather, he lived in the mountains and um, and it's actually his, uh, Oliver Anthony's, his, that's his artist's name. It's actually a tribute to his grandfather who was called uh, Oliver. I forget his actual real name now of the artist that we're talking about. But so anyway, so to me, it's like, well, <laughs> if you're inspired by your grandfather and he was a musician and he lived in the Appalachian Mountains you know, gen- um, culturally speaking, you are a part of that, you know, you're part of that, uh, that culture anyway. And, and, and of course, these, these borders are, are a bit fuzzy. And, um, but so uh, in terms of like the, the contrast, I thought it was interesting to also look at Tidewater, which is that culture just north of um, Charlotte, Wilmington, you know, where Oliver Anthony's from, what, what he's singing about, then the, you know, the Richmond, North of Richmond. And in the book, um, Colin Woodard calls it Tidewater. And he uh, describes it as Tidewater was led by settlers who were the second sons, like the literal second sons of the British aristocracy, those who la- whose lack of inheritance back in England brought them to the colonies. They sought to recreate their more feudal society in their new homeland. With themselves at the top and indentured servants and enslaved people at the bottom, they sought to create a paternalistic, mannered, class-based society. The Tidewater ethos was that your betters knew best and would take care of you as long as you stayed in your place. So it's kind of interesting to you know, think about uh, D.C., Washington, D.C., and the culture around that as being influenced by the original second sons of the the British aristocrats. Yeah, and so so that kind of maybe that's the new tension that that we're we're feeling in society where, you know, the podcasters and the the people on maybe more like Twitter are more representative of Appalachia and then Tidewater is maybe more 
who knows, like, uh, you know, mainstream media and like places like Reddit um, that are just more kind of in line with the uh, um, um, status quo, right? The, the status quo up to now. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. It's it's crazy how that's happening and how this movement with Oliver Anthony was was so fast. I know you you've this slide is super interesting too about the I guess migration from those tidewater type areas to you know the more of the Appalachia deep south type areas. Yeah, yeah, the the you know it's it's actually you know it is actually happening. People say there is migration and. And uh, these are big trends, you know, like, uh, um, and by the way, ca California and uh, is, is part of an area that Colin Woodard describes as the left coast. Um, and he doesn't, he doesn't do it pejoratively. Like it's just because the, the, he's saying that the, it, culturally speaking, it's very close to Yankee because of these like uh, religious, more radical cultures, they would go around and then settle uh, religious inspired communities on on the west coast um but so that results of course in in uh high taxation cultures you know because they believe more in community and and if you live under a gold standard you know the difference between a high taxation culture and a low taxation culture isn't that extreme but uh i do think under a fiat standard these things get really out of whack pretty quickly you know i grew up in belgium and like you know tax the Tax Freedom Day is at, is after the summer, so like basically, you pay taxes. This is kind of a, it's kind of a, a way to visualize how uh, or imagine how taxes impact people. So you just, you know, you you take the average tax that people have to pay or the mean tax, and then you say out of the 365 days a year, how many do I work for myself and how many do I work for the government? So when when Taxation Freedom Day is after the summer, it means that for more than half of the year, you've been working for the government, and then at the end, you can start paying yourself. So yeah, so I believe that you know these these higher taxations, and then it um, there's just more distortions in society that happen uh, because of the fiat system. And so I think part of the reason why people immigrate emigrate, I mean, is uh, is because of taxes. But it could also be because of cultural reasons. It's just a something interesting that I, I think is um, maybe not to be neglected, like looking at some of these trends. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I guess to some extent, the high taxation and the culture can kind of be one and the same with like the distrusting the aristocrats, distrusting the leaders of a specific culture. You know, you might you might create your own culture and go off into Appalachia. <laughs> Yeah, I mean historically, yeah, I mean also these these are more younger areas, right? Like I I, I did a little uh, road trip to Oklahoma, and I mean literally from a kind of a colonizer's quote unquote point of view, from the you know kind of the white colonizer's point of view, Oklahoma was empty until 1889 when they did the land run, and so it's like so young, like this is a this is a country so to speak that didn't exist a hundred years ago. Um, so yeah. Like, whereas if you go to like, you know, uh, Massachusetts and stuff, like there was settlers there in the 1600s already. Yeah, definitely true. So it definitely seems like with, you know, this presentation, Oliver Anthony's music that he released, um, that there's a movement going on, at least in America, for something to rise into popularity that much 
it's it's not to me it's not just a coincidence i think we've also seen like melee in argentina is is very popular now can you tell us a little bit about him and are these two concepts potentially related yeah yeah i i think they are um because basically the status quo i think it's clear by now pretty much in the entire west is not friendly to bitcoin um you know look at the bis look at all these institutions the imf um European Union, ECB, Federal Reserve, um, you know, and then of course the governments, uh, the, the the existing um, parties who are in power are just not friendly to Bitcoin, at least not in the sense that they are ready to embrace it. Like they might tolerate it to an extent, but uh, really kind of doing something like what Bukele did in um, El Salvador is just not in the cards with the existing um, powers that be. And so, yeah, I do think there's a link there with um, some new movements where there, there, there are now young people who grew up in the internet era um, who never knew what the world was like before the internet and who think it's only normal that you should have, uh, you know, protocols that govern money that are just, that you can't manipulate. Um just how like BitTorrent was a simple protocol to download stuff and nobody's in charge of it. So the BitTorrent of money, that would make sense to a lot of younger people. And also, uh, you know, often voting laws have been have been changed to like include younger and younger people. And so, yeah, Millet is, uh, is a really unique phenomenon um, uh, because he has this incredible popularity with the youth. Uh, he's like a rock star. And by the way, he was... Um, a singer in a, I believe it was a, I don't know, no, I don't know if it was a Queen tribute band. It was basically a rock band, like a, a cover band. And then also he was a goalkeeper in a professional f- soccer team. So he has, and he was an economist. So he has like this oh. weird combination of like knowing what, what groups of people love. And then also, you know, the economic analysis of society. And what I think is unique about him is that even though he's depicted as extreme right, is that it's a very principle-based program that he has. And he basically says, like, we should, you know, governments should live within their means and they should basically only uh, focus on rule of law, so the, the court system and the police is kind of pretty much only the only thing he wants the government to do. He says everything else, they destroy and he uses many examples of course in Argentina where they were fighting trying to fight poverty and made it worse and they were trying to you know um, lower um, rent and they only increased it etc and so that to me is different than the more tribalist approach that we're seeing in uh, a lot of political discourse today where the only battle is kind of like who are the bad guys versus who are the good guys like that's really the debate and uh, the people on the left want to say, the woke people are the good guys and the people on the right want to say maybe, I don't know if it's going to be a race thing, but yeah, I mean, some people are starting to say, uh, we are the, the existing, um, whatever culture or the existing, um, the, the color of the, of the original settlers is, is, uh, what, what matters and the new people, they are the problem. Whereas what Malay is saying, it's, it's nothing to do with color or it's nothing to do with uh, who's in power. He just uh, says, let's uh, 
radically lower government expenses. Let's do away with the central bank and um, and just uh, allow the market to um, to self-regulate. Um, and basically going back to the 19th century, because you know in Europe and in, uh, in in Latin America in the U.S. This was the norm, right? To have a very small government and um, unwind this gigantism that we've seen develop under uh, under the fiat standard. Yeah, I mean, I know he's mentioned Bitcoin a few times in some of the interviews he's done. If he wins, do you think that he will incorporate Bitcoin somehow into Argentina policy? Yeah, I'm not educated enough to know what kind of power he might have once he becomes president because people often overestimate the the things that a president can do um, in, in any given country, uh, even in the US, like the president doesn't have that much power. Um, so, so that remains to be seen, whether he could be boycotted, et cetera, uh, or just not get the votes. I think it would be Either way, it would just be huge as a precedent to have someone who at least in, in lip service, right, who, who would be, I, th I do think he would be a vocal proponent of um, uh, a free market for money, competing monies, uh, denationalization of money, because that's, that's, that's Hayek's agenda. And uh, I mean, um, Millet is a Rothbardian, you know, um, and Rothbard, which is... Um, and a, a free market economist uh, who, who died in the 90s. Um, and Rothbard was was uh, radically in favor of denationalizing money and uh, privatizing the production of money, et cetera, and uh, pointing out at a lot of examples in history where that went very well. So yeah, I would be very surprised if Millet came out against Bitcoin. Like that doesn't make sense to me. And so in that sense, I think he's just kind of taking... Bukele's discourse to the next level, uh, where he's integrating it into uh, a broader economic picture of very, very lean government and allowing people to take care of themselves more rather than having to rely on government largesse, which the government doesn't have anything. They only redistribute. So ultimately, that that's part of what, what uh, Millet often talks about is, is really pointing out like, hey, the government doesn't produce anything um, they just redistribute. So maybe the market is smarter at doing that than they have been so far. Yeah, I definitely agree with a lot of things that he has to say. <clears throat> Didn't you live in Argentina, by the way? Yeah, I spent, um, I think, altogether about four months there, four or five months uh, between 2011, 2013. Yeah, because I wanted to know I was writing my newsletter uh, back in Belgium, and uh, I just was worried about the euro and where things were going. And so I wanted to learn um, more about how people m m uh, survived in, a, in an economy where th the money already has deteriorated, where everything already is, where they've seen hyperinflations and things like that, and life still goes on. And so, yeah, I spent four or five months in, in uh, Argentina, four or five months in uh, Chile, and then uh, traveled around some other countries in Latin America. Awesome. That's very cool. I guess like having experience living there, do you think that the average Argentine person would be very receptive to Bitcoin if, you know, adoption started to really take off? I think so far, they have so much to worry about already 
you know, they have so much volatility to deal with locally, political volatility. Like sometimes the streets are blocked off because there's another protest. Uh, there's just so, you know, we're kind of the stuff that we have seen since COVID, like all this weird stuff, like all of a sudden there's supply chain issues and something's not available or, you know, the prices of this, the, the lumber is crazy high all of a sudden. Like they have dealt with that literally day in, day out for years and years. And so um, to them, the dollar has been a breath of fresh air, being able to just, um, you know, have uh, dollar bills and, and pay things with that. And so I think a lot of uh, Argentines so far have shied away from Bitcoin directly uh, because of the volatility. But I do think once the dollar starts showing the same features than the Argentine peso has, where you get very high inflation, I think they're, yeah, they're absolutely primed to switch to something like Bitcoin because um, they've been improvising for years. Like syst System D is like one way to describe it. It's from French, se débrouiller. It's like to, to figure things out or like the gray economy, like, you know, the way they describe the economy of Africa often is like, that's kind of the way things go is like, nobody really understands how, but somehow things work uh, despite the government dysfunction. Huh. Yeah. I mean, very interesting. Um, so we talked about Oliver Anthony, talked about Malay. I know Oman is is building a, you know, investing at least a billion dollars into Bitcoin mining. It seems like there's this movement happening all over the, the world, really. Do you think it's quietly happening in other places that we might not even really know about? Yeah, I think so. I think it's it's things are quietly happening. Conversations are happening. Um, I think oftentimes, even in an existing administration, you have people who are sympathetic to something new, but they just know that the winds are not in the right direction yet. So if they stick their head out, they can lose their job or whatever. They would get kicked out. But then if there's an election and there's a new leader, all of a sudden those existing people can start aligning them or start supporting the new leader. So I think I think in a way the spark is going to be elections often where you, you do need some new people in power. Um, but that doesn't mean that the existing conversations are not important, right? Even if you talk to someone who's a minority in their party and they 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 manage to start understanding Bitcoin. So yeah, I really do think so. Cause I mean, we're we're in the midst of a um a crash of government bonds. It's a real crash. Um and so, so many balance of power things have been built around that. Um, so many pension funds have been relying on it. So many insurance companies, so many, I mean, it's endless, right? So this is, the the financial system is being disrupted in a way that it hasn't in literally decades, probably since the, I mean, I would say it's worse than the early 80s, what's, what's starting to happen. Um, so you're talking four decades at least. Um, so yeah, I think because of that, people are starting to think like, okay, well, I was aligned with the powers that be, but now the status quo is going to be... So even if you're totally Machiavellian, you know, as a bureaucrat or something, you need to start thinking strategically because um, the winds might change. And then if you want to survive politically, you might have to start marching in front of another parade. And so, yeah, like people like Robert F. Kennedy, I like Oman and, and um, wasn't that interesting that the Omani prince, I believe, or Sheikh uh, visited El Salvador. So it's kind of like 
the beginning of Bitcoin diplomacy, like where Bitcoin friendly nations start developing relationships. I, that's fascinating to me. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I completely agree. I definitely think there is something going on. And to me, the solution is Bitcoin. And a lot of people are realizing there's a, a big problem or something wrong with the world and today's financial system that is leaking into cultures and countries elsewhere. But yeah, and Bitcoin's the solution and just, you know, 99% haven't quite figured that out yet, potentially. Um, it's going back to the US, I guess. Do you think Bitcoin will play a role in the 2024 presidential election? Yeah, it wasn't interesting when we went to the Miami conference that we had um, four presidential candidates who were pro-Bitcoin uh, and two of them were US presidential candidates. So yeah, I mean, I can definitely see it being a subject that's brought up in the debates. Not that I think it's guaranteed to happen, but if Bitcoin basically starts rallying, I think that's going to be what makes the difference. If into the elections, Bitcoin starts rallying, then yes, I can see it being brought up. If it stays kind of flat, then I think there's so many other things going on that, yeah, it won't make a big difference. If the elections were like put a year later or two years later, then I would feel stronger. But it's happening so soon now that I don't know. It's it's kind of hit or miss whether Bitcoin will play a big role in the US elections yet. Yeah, I kind of agree. I think it's if Bitcoin is on another massive bull run by then, then I'm sure it'll be a big topic, topic of conversation. But it may be just a little bit after that. Um, time will tell, I guess. Um, I know you you ended like your your bit bit block boom presentation with like there's no other fever like Bitcoin fever and I I definitely think a lot of the world is probably about to catch Bitcoin fever. Are there any other fevers that you're excited about or is like Bitcoin your your main focus right now? You mean in, from an investment point of view or from just from uh, anything point of view like <laughs> AI, uh, you know, politics, anything? Wow. Um Oh yeah, there's 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 plenty cooking because I think you know oftentimes when when there's change in society, they, things don't happen in a vacuum. Like there there's there's um, all kinds of things that happen at the same time, weirdly that are inter interrelated in ways that are hard to understand sometimes. Um, yeah, I mean I mean obviously AI is going to keep you know busting forward. Uh, that's gonna that's going to change things. Um, I think it's a bit hard to understand how, but I, I do think there'll be, even if, you know, AGI starts to happen, like, you know, um, where, where it really starts to get close to human intelligence, uh, they will be competing AIs. And actually, I think Bitcoin, I agree with Drew Bunsell that Bitcoin um, will be a way for us to, trade with AIs and for AIs to trade between each other because they can remember private keys. Um, so yeah, big thing. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of want to see what the whole UFO disclosure thing is going to turn out to be because that that's still cooking as well. Um, you know, these non-human intelligence uh, things. I don't think that's a PSYOP. I think there's, there's really something going on there, but time will tell. Um, yeah, any, any other things that are on your radar? I'm, I'm trying to think what else is going on. Yeah, I mean, I think AI is quite fascinating. I definitely think there's a short-term AI bubble. Like, I remember back in 2021, everyone was, you know, borrowing money and buying Bitcoin ASICs, and now everyone's 
apparently borrowing money and buying uh, GPUs to you know build these models. Um, so I think there's a, some sort of a bubble. But like, if we're on the cusp of AGI and something really takes off, then it could be a massive uh, technological change <laughs> that we've never experienced before. I don't know when that'll happen. Maybe it'll be 10 years from now. Maybe it's next year. Who knows? Yeah. 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 And um, I mean, in terms of fever, I think like when I think about fever, I think about melt up, like something is like going to go bonkers. And and it's actually a reference to gold fever, of course. It's, you know, the, the, all these um, these uh, periods of gold fever that have happened in the past when they people find like a new source of, of gold in the ground and then all, all, you know, the hordes go there. Um, but, uh, to me that, that, you know, because you can't get something from nothing, like it, there's always a, there's always a, 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 an inverse relationship happening at the same time. So there's going to be meltdowns at the same time, I believe. Um, I mean, Bitcoin is half a trillion dollar for it to go to 5 trillion, you know, you need money to come from somewhere. And so I really think, and it's not going to be caused by Bitcoin. It's just already happening. It's like, yes, the, the the bond bubble is bursting uh real estate unfortunately i think it's going to go down a lot especially if you correct it for inflation um a fever i do think fever can happen in the commodity space where just you know just very because it's the basics people need oil people need uh um basic raw materials and so i think the prices there are, are just going to go bonkers and um these companies are going to make a comeback like big mining companies and other uh, commodity-related companies in a way that people didn't expect. Like everybody's still looking at, oh, Apple and and all these um, consumer tech companies. I think the next five, ten years, um, and it's necessary too. Like we need more money to go to just the basics so that you know uh, people can survive. Because you can't survive on um, on uh, AirPods or whatever other widgets you have, like you survive on food and, and things like that. And so we need more investment in those areas. I agree. Well, Tour, thanks so much for coming on. I love chatting with you. I feel like you have a fantastic perspective on so many different things. Um, where can the audience go to learn more about you or some of the research that you may have released? Oh, I would say just Google my name. Uh, and alternatively, my uh, reports are on a website called adamantresearch.com with uh, three A's. And uh, yeah, you can download them for free there um, and then gradually. And also I've been doing podcasts. So like I said, if you look up my name on things like Spotify and stuff like that, there's there's more things that I've done. Awesome. Love it. Tour, thanks so much for coming on. This is great. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it.